0: I invite you to turn in your copy of Scripture this morning to our text, which is Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 6. As our series through uh, the book of Hebrews is coming to a conclusion, and the author here in this letter now uh, starts to draw some practical applications to what it means for us to be in Christ Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 6. And there we read, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? As we consider these verses this morning, it's important to note that this is toward the end of the letter to the Hebrews. It's chapter 13. And as we uh, come to this chapter and read this series of exhortations, of, of instructions in the Christian life, we need to not rem- uh, not forget all that we have learned thus far from Hebrews chapter 1 uh, through chapter, chapters 12. Uh, we have learned about who we are in the Lord Jesus Christ and what we have received in Him. We have received a salvation that will not tarnish, will not spoil, will not fade, that he has accomplished our redemption. We have learned that Christ is our prophet who has revealed to us his accomplished work and the salvation that we are given, that he is our priest who has secured that salvation by his blood and who has brought us into God's family, and that he is our king who continues to rule and reign over us. And so now, as we look at chapter 13 and These verses that are before us, what the author is giving us, as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, is he is giving us uh, several points of application. Essentially, uh, the writer is saying, if you understand, if you and I understand the message, if you and I understand all that has been laid out here in chapters 1 through 12 of Hebrews, the good news of what Christ has accomplished for us, then this is how it will look in our lives. This is how it will play out. This is how it will look in the details of our daily responsibilities as Christians. And he gives several implications. And the first we see is that we are to love one another. See in verse 1, let brotherly love continue. Now, it's important to note the love that is described here, that he says brotherly love. Now, why is, why is that important that he couches it in such terms? He says, brotherly love. Well, because the idea of brotherly love emphasizes, doesn't it, that we are the family of God. We're the family of God, brothers and sisters. Remember the instruction that he gave in chapter 12, that as believers, God is our Father. And as our Father, God treats us as his children, Because of our adoption through the Lord Jesus Christ. See, our status is no longer as enemies of God, no longer strangers to God. You and I are no longer objects of wrath. Why? Because we have been justified in Christ. And we have been adopted into God's family. And so it's important to note that uh, as such, we are not like a family, We are a family. We are the children of God. And that, therefore, makes us brothers and sisters in Christ. We are a forever family. If you uh, look around the church this morning, uh, these are the people that you will spend eternity with. We are the forever family of God. And so the writer of Hebrews says, let brotherly Love continues. See, this is the indicative, the truth that supports this exhortation. Let your love for one another be informed by this new reality that we are united in Christ together as a family. God is our Father. Christ is our brother, and the Spirit is our advocate. And so we must treat each other according to this new relationship. This new relationship in a sense, trumps all other distinctions that we might make. Distinctions of race, of gender, of social status, all those distinctions are nullified in the church. The one important distinction is that we are one in Christ. It's what the Lord Jesus taught his disciples in the text we read from John 13. A wonderful passage that describes how he washed their feet, showing his willingness to serve them in such a humble way. But what all of his service in John chapter 3 was really pointing to was something greater that he would perform when he would soon humble himself on the cross and wash them of their sins. But even as he served them, he gave them this commandment, as we read in John chapter 13. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Think about the dynamics in that that room on that night. Here were 11 men. Uh, Judas, by this time, had left to betray the Lord. Here were these 11 disciples left. And... We know that these men were very different one from another right? blue collar, white collar, different personalities, different ambitions, different backgrounds. And the Lord Jesus looked at them and said, You are to love one another. Why? He gave them the indicative, He gave them the, defo- the foundation of why. Because they were loved by Him, they were loved by Jesus. He said, Just as I have loved you, you also are to love. One another. Many of you know that I am the youngest of eight children, and uh, growing up, my siblings and I, we got along pretty well. Uh, but, you know, there were times where we'd argue. Um, you can imagine in such a big family, uh, there were many times when we'd argue. Um, and usually uh, the arguments were about things like who got the last slice of pizza or the last piece of cake. And, you know, when my parents would intervene, To kind of break up the argument, their usual appeal, and it was an appeal that often worked, was hey, you're both in the same family. Uh, You're brothers and sisters, uh, so act like it, right? Treat each other in that way. This is the similar appeal that we read here in the book of Hebrews and throughout the New Testament that the people in church, those of us gathered here this morning and our brothers and sisters, scattered throughout the world. Uh, This is our family. And so we are to treat each other this way. We are to love one another according to uh, this new reality that we live in, this new unity that we have. Um, And, you know, we read instructions about what this love looks like throughout the New Testament. We see here the exhortation, as we'll see in verses 2 and 3, the practical implications, but it really is instructive as we read the New Testament, how our love for one another is to be informed. For example, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, right, usually known as the love chapter. It's a chapter that is often read at weddings and applied uh, to marriage. But you know, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it's for the church. It's to instruct you and I how to love one another, those of us who are in the church. And listen to what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, to us. He says, beginning in verse 4, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is the love that we are to show to one another. And that's why I, I use this word to show to one another, because in the New Testament, love is not primarily a feeling, but it shows itself, it displays itself in our actions. Notice again John 13 where Jesus says, As I have loved you, he showed his love for us in action, right, by his obedience in his life and his obedience even unto death on the cross. And so, in the same way, our love for one another is revealed in our actions. There are many ways that we show love to one another, but our passage this morning describes two very concrete examples. We see in our second point, verse 2, we are to show hospitality, show hospitality, Hebrews chapter 13 verse 2, we read, "Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now uh, the author here is alluding to Abraham and the heavenly strangers that he entertained. Uh, we read about this in Genesis chapter 18, that three men uh, visited Abraham and Sarah, and these men were the Lord, and two of his angels. And we read there in Genesis 18 that Abraham and Sarah provided a meal for them. And the text says that while the men ate, uh, Abraham stood by them. He didn't sit and eat with them. It was a sign of respect that Abraham was showing, uh, acknowledging the fact that these were uh, divine uh, beings. And so when we think about hospitality and what the Bible teaches us about this topic, you know, the main idea behind it is that we are to be willing to invite people into our homes. And in this context, here in Hebrews 13, it's uh, specifically inviting Christians who we might not know well into our homes. See, not just our close friends and those that we get along with really well at church, but to invite all Christians into our homes to be hospitable in that way. Now, there's a historical context behind this exhortation here in Hebrews chapter 13. And it's the idea that uh, in the first century, when this letter was written, uh, travel was dangerous and it was very difficult. The ancient world, uh, travel long distances, over long distances was uh, precarious. You know, I I returned yesterday from uh, Philadelphia. You know, uh, no matter how many annoyances I had with uh, delayed flights and uh, crammed airplane seating. You know, Every time I fly, I think about how amazing the technology is. Right? You know, we can fly in just a few hours from one coast uh, to the other, and we don't have to do it on horseback. It doesn't take us months. We don't have to do it in covered wagons. Uh, we don't have to travel long distances on camelback or on horseback get to sit and relax and we are just taken there it's almost like you fall asleep once the plane gets going and by the time you wake up you're in a different time zone it's just absolutely amazing it's so hard for us sometimes to fathom what travel was like in the first century all the historical accounts point to the fact that it was dangerous and difficult and you know we know that there were ends for travelers to stay overnight but those ends were few and far between, and they were often crowded and very expensive to stay at. And so the instruction here in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 2 to the early church is to care for Christians who are traveling by inviting them into your home for the night, to provide shelter and safety for Christians who are traveling and in need. And this exhortation is given throughout the New Testament. We read, in Romans chapter twelve verse thirteen, Paul says, "Contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality." In First Peter chapter four verse nineteen, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, loved ones, what does this mean for us today? You know, we live in a different setting, um, and you know, often being willing to invite Christians into our homes isn't a matter of life and death as it was in the first century because, you know, there are plenty of comfortable hotels. uh, So it's not as much a necessity, according to life and death, as it was in the first century. But this principle of inviting each other into our homes and receiving each other in fellowship uh, still applies. So the application is very simple. We are to be hospitable to one another open up our homes to one another, to invite one another over for a dinner or for a lunch, time spent together, especially, we read here, especially to those who are strangers, who might be new members in our church, who are Christians that we do not know, but again, who are nonetheless our brothers and sisters in Christ. See, we are to invite people into our families, because we have been invited into the family of God. Another practical way mentioned by the author for us to show love to one another, we see our third point in verse 3, we are to remember suffering believers. He writes, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body." Now, the Hebrew Christians, uh, we read uh, earlier in chapter 10, they had ministered to those in prison in the past. And the writer here reminds them to keep doing that, to keep ministering to those Christians who were in prison. So the question comes up you know, why were Christians in prison? What did they do? Did they do something bad in order uh, order that they are, you know, they're stuck in prison? And, And the answer we see. And we know this from the context that uh, this letter was written in. Uh, The reason why these Christians were imprisoned is because of persecution. They were suffering for the sake of the gospel. Because they confessed Christ, they had uh, been thrown in prison. We saw this, and we see this throughout the book of Acts, with the apostles who were arrested for their preaching. And You know, when we think about, again, the first century context, uh, prisoners in the first century were not treated well. They often had to depend on friends and family, uh, even for their most basic needs. Uh, Paul, we know from his letters, the Apostle Paul, he was visited by people who brought him such basic things as food and books and clothes. And it's interesting here as we read Hebrews chapter 13, verse 3, the way the author exhorts Christians to show solidarity and sympathy with those who are suffering for righteousness' sake. Look at the way that he describes this solidarity and sympathy. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. See, since you also are in the family of God, remember that they are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Similar exhortation is given in first Corinthians twelve, verse twenty-six, that if one suffers, we all suffer, because we are all in the same family of God. Romans chapter twelve, verse fifteen. The Apostle Paul calls us to rejoice with those who rejoice as well as to weep with those who weep. See, what we see is that there's a bond that is formed by our unity with Christ and one another, loved ones. Again, that connects us eternally. And so we must remember those who are suffering as by way of application how might we apply this to our context today? We are certainly to remember uh, suffering Christians who are imprisoned throughout the world. We know that our brothers and sisters throughout the world are persecuted in many countries and uh, very uh, facing very uh, very stiff opposition um, in the home worship guide in the bulletin uh, under Wednesday if Some of you use the home worship guide. Um, Every Wednesday, I list a country for us to pray for the churches in that country. Uh, For this week, it's Libya. And then I also include that we are to pray for persecuted Christians. That's our way of remembering that the experience that we have here in Orange County, in Southern California, is a very unique experience to the experiences that Christians in North Korea have many parts of Africa the Middle East this is a unique comfortable situation that we live in so it's easy for us to forget those who do not live in the comfort that we do here in Southern California and so we must remember them and pray for them you know but we could also apply this in a more broad way can't we to include our brothers and sisters who are in different, I might say, uh, different kinds of prisons of suffering and uh, discomfort. Those who are in elderly care homes, those who are in uh, hospice care, those uh, who are our brothers and sisters who are ill and unable to uh, get around to be a part of our worship on Sunday mornings. You know, our attitude, brothers and sisters, must not be, uh, they're not at church, so they're forgotten. You know, out of sight, out of mind, that must not be our attitude. Instead, we must always keep in mind that they are our brothers and sisters. And so let us remember to visit them, to pray for them, and to help them as God enables us to do so. Fourthly, we are taught here that we must, as Christians, honor marriage. We read verse 4, Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now, we know that the institution of marriage is under assault uh, by our culture. The uh, LGBTQ movement has worked tirelessly, has it not, to redefine marriage uh, differently from what the Bible teaches us that marriage is. We know from the Bible that God's original design for marriage has always been a lifelong, monogamous, one-flesh, covenantal union between one man and one woman. That is how the Bible describes marriage and instructs us about marriage. And when we think about you know, our culture's current assault on marriage, you know this is nothing uh, new. It was the same in the ancient. World, In that first century context that the writer is uh, writing to the Hebrews, uh, in that context, uh, some felt in Greek and Roman culture that chastity and monogamy in marriage was an unreasonable expectation. Doesn't that sound like our culture today? Um, In fact, in Greek and Roman culture, men were often expected to have mistresses. No surprise. Others who held a view that, in the ancient world, they held a view that uh, the flesh is bad and the spirit is good. And so any form of intimacy, even in the context of marriage, uh, was something that stunted spiritual devotion. These were known as ascetics who uh, viewed any form of physical pleasure as bad. Beloved ones, the Bible reveals that both of these views are wrong. We know that marriage was designed by God as a union between one man and one woman. So in the Bible, there is a commandment against adultery. And marriage was also designed by God for intimacy between one man and one woman. And so we don't believe in asceticism. And so our, as Christians, our marriages are a testimony to the world about God's design. They're a testimony to the world about how God has designed marriage. And our marriages are also a testimony to the judgment that will come upon those who do not honor it, who want to redefine it, who want to live outside of the bounds that God has set for marriage and for uh, sexuality. It's interesting as we look at Hebrews 13 verse 4 the way that The exhortation is given, let marriage be held in honor among all. You know, to honor uh, means to value something as precious. It means to esteem something as of great worth. And, you know, for those of us who have been married for uh, any length of time, we know that it's easy not to honor marriage, not to esteem it as precious and as something of great worth. It's easy to adopt our culture's view of marriage, right? Be it the LGBTQ agenda, or even how marriage is perceived in popular culture. How is it perceived in popular culture? As a burden? Something that holds us back right for from having fun. It's a hindrance from excitement and things like that. But loved ones, biblically we see that God gave us marriage, a covenantal union, in order that we might better understand him and how he works. Because the Bible says that he gave us marriage partly so that we might understand the relationship between Christ and his church. Right? This is exactly what the Apostle Paul points out for us in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 28 and following, where Paul says, in the same way, Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And Paul explains what he's getting at. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. See, the Apostle Paul quotes from Genesis chapter 2 in this passage, and he shows that the original creation of the husband and wife covenantal union is modeled. It's modeled on what? On Christ's forthcoming union with his church, with his body. So marriage from the beginning was patterned by God after Christ's relationship with his church. And what kind of a relationship is that, brothers and sisters? It's covenantal. It's binding. It's a forever union between us and Christ. In the upper room, in Matthew chapter 26, when the Lord Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, as he passed the cup, he says, drink of it, all of you, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is telling his disciples, and he is instructing us, my relationship to you is covenantal. It's binding. I will never leave you or forsake you. I am united to you forever. Similarly, the relationship between a husband and a wife is covenantal. It's not a forever bond. Union, But here on this earth, as God has blessed us uh, to, with the institution of marriage, it's a lifelong union. How else is uh, Christ's relationship with his church described in the Bible? It's monogamous, right? He is our God. We are his people. And this is why idolatry, especially in the Old Testament, was sometimes referred to as adultery. See, our relationship with him is to be monogamous, one God. It's permanent. As we said, we are cleaved to him, we're in union with him. There's no breaking that bond. Our union with him is loving. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19. We read the love of Christ surpasses knowledge, right? Paul is saying there, you can't quantify it, you can't measure it. You can't take a measuring tape or scales and see how much love Christ has for us because it is something that surpasses knowledge. It's also intimate. The union that we have with Christ by the Holy Spirit is close and personal. We know that prayer is the language of this intimate relationship. And lastly, we know that it's sacrificial. Christ gave himself for us. We give ourselves to him in return as living sacrifices. And loved ones, this is why you and I, the church, are described as his bride, we're the bride of Christ. Why? Because we are united to him by the Holy Spirit. See, we're in covenantal union with him. God has given us marriage to help us better understand our relationship with Christ. This was God's original design for marriage. The lifelong, monogamous, one-flesh covenantal union between one man and one woman. It's one that reflects Christ's covenantal permanent, loving, intimate, and sacrificial relationship with his church. And lastly, we read in Hebrews 13, verses 5 through 6, about the need for us to be content. We read, Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now notice, loved ones, that the Bible here does not say, keep your life free from money. It doesn't say keep your life free from money, as though riches and money are inherently evil. No, what we see in verse 5 is, keep your life free from the love of money. See, it's the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evils says Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. And Even when we consider the teachings of our Lord Jesus, you know, he warned his disciples a lot about the dangers of the love of money because he knew that the love of money is a pitfall for many believers. 16 out of 38 of his parables are concerned with how to handle money and possessions. 16 out of 38. And in the gospel, an amazing one out of 10 verses, so 288 verses in all, deal directly with the subject of money. And the Bible as a whole has about 500 verses on prayer, 500 verses on faith, but there are more than 2,000 verses on instructing us about money and possession. So notice again in our text that the author says, keep your life free from love of money and keeping with the rest of what Scripture teaches, knowing the dangers and the pitfalls of loving money more than we love and trust in God. But we see that in our text in Hebrews chapter 13, the author also provides us guidance in how to keep ourselves from the love of money. And the guidance given is that we are to be content. Look at verse 5, the second half. And be content with what you have. Now this uh, call to contentment, he undergirds with two passages from the Old Testament. From Joshua chapter 1, verse 5, the promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you. In Psalm 118, verse 6, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Translation of Psalm 118, verse 6 is the Lord is, this is a literal translation, is on my side. He is for me. The Lord is, the covenantal God. Therefore, knowing that, what can man, mere man, do to me? That's the picture that the psalmist paints and that the writer of Hebrews now quotes. So what we see, loved ones, is when we talk about the idea of contentment in the Christian life, you know, we need to understand it's not, it's not something that we strive after that we could work toward in the sense of you know, close your eyes and say, I need to be content. Just try really, really hard to be content. That's not what the Bible teaches us about how contentment comes about in the Christian life. But instead, the Bible says that contentment is something like a a byproduct. It's a result of understanding who God is and what he has promised to do for us. We can't strive to be content, but what we do, loved ones, is we seek to know God more. We seek to understand more of his word what Christ has accomplished for us, how God provides for us every day, how he is our loving Father, the implications of that, to see a big view, a bigger view of who God is. And that is what produces in us contentment, contentment with what our Heavenly Father has seen fit to give us and to provide for us. We don't strive to be content, but we seek to know more about God And his love for us in Christ and contentment will follow. To know that he is our heavenly father. That Christ has accomplished our salvation. And that salvation is continually being applied to us by the Holy Spirit. In conclusion, I read from Romans chapter 8, verse 31 through 32. The Apostle Paul says, if God is for us. Again, if God is for us. Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The answer is he will graciously give us all things. Our daily bread, everything that we need, for he gives us life and breath and everything. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we do thank you for... Saving us through the Lord Jesus Christ for the way that the Spirit continues to apply Christ's work to our lives, and for this new reality that we have brought, been brought into, that we are your children, that we are brothers and sisters united in Christ. We pray that that reality would work itself out in our attitudes toward one another, in our actions uh, toward one another, or that we might learn daily how to serve Christ and this body that we have been united to. We pray these things in Jesus' name.